uh, behavior change does not happen from a course alone. That knowledge alone, simply acquiring new knowledge, does not lead to behavior change. Hello everyone, and welcome back to You Creates Podcast, Many Different Birds. Broadcasting on CJSW Radio, where we will hear authentic stories from special guests from all backgrounds and bridge the gap between non-Indigenous and Indigenous communities, with a special focus on the Canadian healthcare system. We want to open up the floor to honest discussions and get a deeper insight into how we can improve our healthcare practices and work on our own biases. Before we begin, I want to acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy comprising the Siksiga, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, including the Chiniki, Bear Spa, and Good Stony First Nations. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Today, we have a special guest, Dr. Rita Henderson, who is a Models of Care Scientist in the Department of Family Medicine with a research focus on population health inequities. She has special initiatives to innovate Indigenous primary health care and was the co-chair of the Coming School of Medicine's Indigenous Health Dialogue. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Rita Henderson. And before we start, is there anything you would like to add that we missed while introducing you? Um, I'm of non-Indigenous background, I'm of settler background, grew up in um, in this territory, in Airdrie actually. Um, I think it's worth noting that I didn't even know that, that whose territory this was when I grew up and so um, I come to this work uh, as an adult and um, I speak from that perspective of, of being of settler background. Nice, and before we start, I do want to say Happy birthday to one of our special co-hosts, Arushi, who is 21 years young today. So how does it feel, Arushi? Well, first of all, thank you. And honestly, 21, 20, that age around, it's like the same thing to me. It is. It's like, like, there's nothing. But like, you know what? Another year, another day. Another another year year. of experiences. Exactly. Right? (laughs) Yeah. Congratulations. Let's jump right into this. So we looked up a little bit of your research focuses, and I know you focus a lot on health equity. So when we say the word health equity, what does it mean? I think uh, underpinning the concept is, for one, we have to define health, population health. So uh, when we're we're grounded in a, a Western biomedical uh, healthcare system, we're often thinking about health in terms of physical bodies, the individual. And at a population level, especially in the last 50, 60 years, where we've increasingly recognized that there are um, environmental and social factors at play. I'd say this, this isn't new for many, many cultural groups. This is just something that Western biomedicine has started to pay more attention to is the environmental and social dynamics that, that uh, shape health. And so uh, the fields of epidemiology emerge and population health intervention type program research um, and, and uh, programming and planning and uh, become embedded further in policy. And so when we look at a population level of, of like whatever are factors that, that unite a certain group of people, it could be the population of a whole country or it could be 
uh, populations of people based on gender identity or shared experiences such as of colonization, uh, we, we see that there's differences in health outcomes. Right, at a population level. It doesn't mean that like at a prescriptive level, somebody will necessarily have certain negative health outcomes. We just see that there's differences and the disparities. Those differences um, are not distributed um, fairly. And so some groups of people at a large scale have higher risk, even regardless of risk behavior. And it's because of their social location. That's an inequity. And um, it, it's important to distinguish inequity from inequality in the sense that when we're looking at inequities, we're very interested and in, we spend a lot of time looking at them, we're very interested in bridging them and, and closing gaps and recognizing that not every group needs the same things in order to bridge those gaps. And so if we conceptualize equality as sort of like an equal distribution of you know the same uh, piece of the pie, the same size of the pie being partitioned to everybody, that's that can still be inequitable if certain groups are on an uneven playing field or table in this metaphor to even be able to reach and access that, um, that same resource. And so when we think about inequities, we're really thinking about how could distribution of resources better meet each group's needs um, in order to achieve um, a more, um, or to bridge those disparity gaps. Okay, so basically it's trying to make like social, economic, environmental factors kind of equal for everyone. So regardless of what their health outcome is, they have the resources there to achieve their health outcomes, positive health outcomes. The resources that they need. Mm -hmm. So we're we're careful usually to to not use that notion of equal necessarily meaning equal distribution of resources because some groups may need more, some may need less or different types of resources in order to to bridge those disparities. So it's kind of targeting each group's needs. Yes, and I would add that I work with Indigenous people that have reminded me that. Um, that simply bridging disparities and seeking to um, level the, the metaphorical playing field isn't necessarily the goal of many Indigenous communities that, that don't see their, the benchmark for health to be a non-Indigenous population that tends to have better outcomes. Their benchmark is often the historical reference of, of ways of life and, and wellness that, that existed prior to colonization. Mm-hmm. And I know in your research, you also take like a generalist approach. And I know it's in the word, like it's general, but if you could describe it in like a research, I guess, practice, what does that mean when you're taking a generalist approach? Uh, it means a number of things in terms of... Um, my attitude towards health and wellness, I, I um, try, by, by taking a generalist approach, I'm deliberately distancing myself from only seeing the immediate presentation of disease as the area to act on, the domain of action, as somebody working in research or in medicine. I rather prefer to see the wider spaces in which people live and, and experience their health. So, so by, by using that type of term, I'm, I'm signaling to people that it's actually a good thing sometimes to just take a step back and see the broader picture. I think in our medical school, and not to knock people that work in precision medicine, but, but there's a policy level value of, of 
sort of cutting edge research and, and really novel things that can happen through through science that can't happen anywhere else because they don't there's not the labs and the the really high tech resources to do that. And I really I, I find precision medicine fascinating, but it's not the only type of attention that, that can be really impactful for for the health of citizens. And so that's another aspect I try to to position. I, I position general generalism in contrast to expertism or expertise. Um, I, I think that my expertise is generalist in the sense also that I'm not trained as a physician. I'm trained as a social scientist. And when I, I work in, in medicine, when I teach physicians or I work with, with physicians in training, I'm trying to remind them sometimes that the three years they have in medical school, which is incredibly fast to cram in a lot of information, um, doesn't even necessarily give them expertise, but they must function. They must be able to seek knowledge and answers that emerge in the course of their later work. And that requires a flexibility of knowledge and a, an ability to move between different knowledge systems or different, like, even specialties within medicine. And so having a skill to move between knowledge systems is a generalism. And that's that's another way that I approach it. I like the idea of when you said, when you look at someone's health outcomes or whatever, you know, like we want to take a bigger picture into why they're feeling that way, that maybe the reason why maybe their cholesterol is high is not because they don't do physical activity, but it's also because they're not able to because they don't have the resources or they don't have a community center nearby, they don't have a gym nearby. And physical activity and lowering, lowering cholesterol doesn't just mean going to the gym. Mm -hmm. It could also mean taking a walk. So using different, I like the idea of using different like you said, religious backgrounds, religious practices, looking at it from a wider scope. Uh, one of my friends is actually doing her master's in precision health. So she always tells me how when they're, a lot of their work is looking at ind individual focused medicine rather than having a cookie cutter approach and then everyone just trying to fit people in. But when you look at a person and their concerns on their own, you can do so much more with advancements. Um, so it's pretty interesting. I'll take this point back to her today. <laughs> I think um, you you just um, made me think of something also like um, it's it's quite politicized to think about what are or it's political to think about what are drivers of health. Like in 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 the Department of Community Health Sciences, we're very I'm, I'm primarily family medicine, but I'm joint appointed in community health sciences. Our attention is very much to recognize the social determinants, the fact that we call them the social determinants of health. And I think um, stress is an effect of inequities, right? Uh, living in constant stress and with high cortisol, if we're thinking at a physiological level, that itself can impede physiological resilience. Um, so we know through precision medicine or for, through through very um, much more lab-based research that the simple reality of living in an environment that is stressful can lead to insulin resistance, regardless of how many walks one goes on, regardless of how much 
vegetables or you know what is considered what might be considered you know the the standard for for nutritional recommendations is are consumed and so um I know that it's it's something that I've I've heard in in discussions about um, about primary care innovation and in and the organization of our healthcare system um, is and, and and who should pay for what that uh, that there's sometimes the suggestion that that people are actually like quite more individually responsible for the determinants of their health than they actually are and the research indicates that your environment is among the biggest factors if not the biggest factor. Yeah, I actually teach kids. Um, I go into schools and I give like mental health presentations about um, the effects of stress on the brain. And one thing I always teach kids is the difference between good stress and bad stress because as kids, you don't realize that stress can be good. We always mm-hmm. associate stress as a negative thing. And I tell them that when we are stressed out, and I compare this to like the notion of like, we see bears everywhere. So when we're in stressful environments, we produce cortisol, our stress hormone, but it gets really bad and we enter bad stress when our receptors can't detect it. And I tell them like, is it good that if we're producing heart, like cortisol at let's say 50%, right and now we're starting to produce it at a hundred percent and i asked them which one's better do you want your body to be producing something at a hundred percent for it to detect it or 50 percent and just explaining that stuff to them and explaining like the impacts of just that on the brain and how hard it is to switch from flight or flight or freeze into rest and digest can be really difficult if this continues on they actually ask a lot of interesting questions so it's cool i think it's really important for them to start learning about this now because i don't think i learned about it until i was in university (laughs) to be honest i actually have a i actually have a master's student right now emma mortimer um who is uh, carrying out her thesis research on the mechanisms in sport that are supportive for indigenous youth wellness Mm -hmm. and uh what's pretty fascinating with her work is how it's um it's not just like socioeconomic upward social mobility that happens through gaining access to sports that can get you into maybe a university where your family might not otherwise afford it. it there's there's a lot of nuance around like how having investors that have you know poning up funds to to get you into sport or to get you into maybe a university setting and comes with mentors that are invested that want to make sure that you have safe housing and want to make sure that that when adversities come up you have the supports needed to respond that you have good nutrition access to nutrition and so forth um or just uh, when you know from a from a Western perspective, you know you hear like sports support identity, right? But we're you know, like she's hearing in in the the lessons from people that engage in sports things like, well, it, you know, it, 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 facing the adversities in kind of in a controlled environment of, of sport allows me to identify with and and really relate to ancestors and the struggles that they would have faced, and at the same time orient myself towards new generations, building my character in ways that that make me better positioned to support and mentor. And so there's like this connection to to past and future that. I think from like a Western biomedical lens sort of escapes attention that is emerging in this research. I think it's fascinating. Yeah, I actually read this article a while back. I'm actually a graduate of Canice. Um, So I read this one article where it was saying that lacrosse is actually um, a sport that was, it came from indigenous communities. It was not from 
like Western people didn't make it. They actually stole it back in the day. And the game itself is actually from the creator. So they explained the whole game, the rules and how it kind of came from like its origins. And they were saying that like sports programmings are already on their own really um, colonized mm-hmm. because they they kind of enforce practices of like competition, teamwork, making people into model citizens, having those like, you know, those essential qualities that people who are go-getters should have. And they're saying, well, the game itself wasn't meant to be that. Yeah, right. that's interesting because it's basically saying that there's like, there's there's very capitalist sort of values that are entrenched in, in dominant ideas about what sport does and serves for a person. And we come at it from like a population health lens and thinking about youth wellness among groups that are yeah. um, oppressed and what it does. I, I think you really have to hear it from the voices of, of those communities. Yeah. Yeah. I know I read another article before, uh, before you ask your second question is, um, they were saying a lot of indigenous youth have to leave reserves to pursue these opportunities, which is not always the best because it's not like it's their option. If they want to leave, they can, but some people don't want to leave their reserves. They don't want to leave their family behind, but they have to in order to pursue um, opportunities. Mm -hmm. And they talked about how in order to feel at home, they incorporate their cultural values into the sport so maybe like every day when they have a game they'll bring like a dream catcher or before they um start they say like a prayer or like a chant so it's really interesting to see how we can take western ways and let's say indigenous ways of knowing and people can combine them together to make it their own own way of living yeah yeah i i'm just um thinking about this uh this example this week that came out in hockey in um uh, in in the playoffs, are, are you familiar with what happened with Zach Whitecloud? I don't really watch hockey. No. <laughs> oh, okay. So Zach Whitecloud is a Dakota man, hockey player. Um, I think for I'm going to say Las Vegas, and uh, an anchor, a TV anchor, mocked his yeah the Vegas Golden Knights and mocked his last name, and um, uh, and then you know, apologized and, and, and phoned White Cloud and had a conversation. And there's a, a, a really interesting, a great video online of Zach White Cloud speaking. He had actually scored, I think, the the, the winning or the last uh, goal in, in the game that won his team, the, the, the game. And instead of speaking from a place of anger, he he just speaks so eloquently and it just really shows the principles that he was raised by and he talks about how proud he is to carry his grandfather's last name and um i just i i there's nothing explicitly like um traditional there's no prayer or ceremony or something like you're just mentioning but there's just this way he carries himself that is just so full of dignity and like he um, he plays hockey in a way and he, he's just like compassionate to this anchor that made this huge mistake. I just, I, I find it a powerful um, story. Yeah. You know that saying, it's like, kill them with kindness. It's, it's like that way of approaching any hard decision and you just like be kind towards it. And it just brings you more power in a way, I feel like. Yeah, and possibly um, that that the space to be kind is probably very small in when when you're persistently um, maybe antagonized. Um, so like the degree of um, character that is probably built up over many years in the young person um, in uh, an elite sport 
uh, is, is fascinating. It, it, it reaches far beyond va- values and skills that are very much more capitalist and, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's demonstrating something much deeper. Exactly. So I, w- I just want to like turn the conversation a little bit. And I know you said you were talk- um, you were a social scientist and a mentor. So how would you as like with that perspective implement anti-racism education in medical residency training? Um, well, first of all, I come to this position, um, and I'm, I'm not even of racialized background, um, mm-hmm. d- for those that can't see <laughs> on the video here. Um, and, and so I've, I've grappled with that question over the years, and it's changed over the years as well. I've been uh, working in some capacity in the medical school since finishing my PhD in 2012, and at the time I first uh, began working in medicine, uh, my mentor, my first Indigenous mentor there was, was Dr. Lindsay Kroshu, who's a family physician scholar in, in family medicine and now the Dean Indigenous at that medical school. And at that time, he had been working for well over a decade in, in creating innovations, educational in- interventions, really fascinating ones. Also, I, I, I don't know if I'll be able to describe any or all here, but he just... Um, has done very innovative things and and it was always done as sort of a project like an idea he had he got a little bit of money for externally from some sort of organization and would do it but then it would kind of wind up on a shelf and and there was no real structure within our institution to operationalize it and there wasn't any pressure within our institution like this is we're talking prior to the truth and reconciliation commission and things like that yes there had been the rcap the royal commission in the 90s but there wasn't really institutional um, uh, momentum at all and so you know it, it was sort of him pushing and, and rattling and finding ways to stir up attention and so working with him I started to see how like and, and form my own relationship with this area to, to realize and see how us going into educational opportunities together sometimes created uh, scenarios where I could weigh in as a person of settler background, revealing my own vulnerability, my own learning journey to learners in a way that could signal for them not to lift their defenses, but to set them down and lean in. Um, And so I started to see how there was value in being a non-Indigenous person of settler background in in this terrain of anti-racism education. But with the caveat that that must be in service to and accountable to the people that are um, that, who we're doing this with and for. And so I've become very clear that I'm accountable to my Indigenous colleagues and peers in the, the school, the space where I work. It's, it's quite direct. I don't, I don't kind of conceptualize my accountability to people I don't know. It's, it's the relationalism. It's the, the, the direct ongoing mutual support that we offer one another that keeps me connected and and bound to like a certain group um and i perhaps in a more i don't want to call it inflammatory sense but like more an in an agitator activist type of sense when i'm in like a classroom i will justify or i will explain my my involvement in anti-racism as um, a commitment to disrupting white systems. Um, I like to say that because I do know that within wider 
Canadian society, there's often like a, I'm, I'm talking about dominant society, um, a resistance even to be identified as settler or to talk about whiteness and as if that's really a racial category and not a social structural organizational category. And so I try to use these terms to maybe stir up a sense of um, questioning or wondering in the audience, maybe discomfort, like we would call it like uh, cognitive dissonance when you know somebody kind of feels that they're being presented with terms or a way of viewing the world that they're not, their values and their understanding isn't really aligned with. And try to invite them to, instead of like shutting down in the face of that feeling of discomfort, to be like, what? Wait, is she, why is she talking about that? Or why did she say white systems? And so I, I say, you know, like, when I talk about white systems, I'm, I'm talking about an idea, an ideology of a colonial state, not people that are just phenotypically white. And so um, I, as a scholar in Indigenous health equity, I don't dedicate my research to studying specifically like Indigenous culture. I, I feel that what I focus on by studying white systems and addressing inequities there, which are largely inequities perpetuated by you know, at, at least dominant settler colonial structures, if not white people, um, and potentially like certain genders over others, um, you know, people of, of more privileged um, ability to move in this world. Um, I'm hopefully holding space for those Indigenous colleagues that are currently and those that are coming up to focus on topics that they're passionate about so that they don't have to be like fighting these white systems too. Like that's not really theirs. Like the, the, the issues that arise from these systems, these colonial systems or the legacies that, that endure from, from colonization are like, how is it the job of the oppressed to, to fix it all? At the same time, I emphasize that it is the space and the prerogative of the oppressed groups to identify the path forward. I want to be complicit in that. Yeah. I think if we don't question or challenge the white systems, I don't think anyone will. And like you said, it, the power, I wouldn't say ultimately comes from, but I would say the starting motion comes from people who are oppressed because the system affects them the most. So they know how, you know, one system in one way doesn't privilege me or doesn't help me, but it's going against me. And if we don't fix those systems now, I feel like we're just going to be making policies that aren't inclusive of everyone. And mm -hmm. I feel like it's it's interesting because I feel like nowadays a lot of inclusive, diverse, like the EDI space has really opened up. Because I know when I was first year university, I don't remember having conversations like that especially on campus or just yeah. even in my private conversations but i feel like over the years and i would say i think this really took a shift during covid where i don't know maybe it might have been but something around covid a lot of institutions and i think society itself began to recognize privilege they began to recognize and started talking a lot more about edi spaces and i could that's what i can pinpoint it to because i know after covid life on campus and just my life and my conversations was very different. I, w I would say that um, I think that the 
the foundations to do that preceded, long preceded COVID. And so I'm hesitant to say that that's the consequence of COVID because I kind of find that COVID sort of radicalized and actually fragmented groups, but that's just from other observations. But I I think that um, I would attribute things like the TRC, which came out in 2015. You know, I recognize that there are many in community who feel that reconciliation, like you, I've, I've heard things and I agree with them, things like you can't have reconciliation without stating truths. Um, and you, you know, and, and just discomfort or feeling that like, it, can we have reconciliation when there's so much inequity still and and so forth and, and not to be a defender of reconciliation. I, I try to really focus on the process of it and tracking shifts that rather than, you know, being too discouraged by not having arrived at the destination yet. But there have been like studies that have shown popular opinion about the, for instance, like the drivers of what of indigenous health in Canada, health disparities in Canada today. And from like 2008 to like 2016, we do see shifts. We do see increasing sectors of of the general Canadian public attributing residential schools and colonization as a a significant driver. Um, So there are shifts. Are they the arrival that we want to be at? No, not at all. Um, But if I could give you a glimpse of the type of like um, work that it takes for the small number of people that were in roles that could influence even our university and system throughout the 2010s, it, it can take three years just to get a new job hire that's equity focused. It can take many years. And so the, the cause, I think, is something five years earlier to when you actually start to see the shifts in systems and that um, we don't yet know all of the consequences of the shutdowns from 2020 to 2022 that we're going to see in 2025, 2027. And so tracking that long-term, I think, will be interesting. Because like, I think what we got around 2019 and such is like some specific deans that got hired, leaders, the vice provost of Indigenous, Dr. Michael Hart, um, people like that, that, that have been able to hold the ground and, and like, you know, be on decision-making tables to flag policies and to support the people that need supporting. Um, that that it took a long time to get to the point to get people like that, and now that they're there, we're starting to see the the work, the, the effects of their place, and that's it takes time. Mm-hmm. Not that I think that we like. I'm not an advocate of things taking time. It's just I, I don't know how to yeah. change big systems otherwise. I don't think we can change like let's say the healthcare system. We cannot do it overnight. I don't think it. We can do it even in a year because. There's just so much to it that even I don't know. And then I feel like a lot of physicians themselves don't know how systems work and systems aren't compatible. Like I know some of the research that I do is that let's say if a student is in distress at the university, in order to get them help um, in like AHS, those two systems, they don't, they clash sometimes. Mm -hmm. So then people get left in this limbo of who do I contact? Do Mm -hmm. I go back? Do I go forward? Who's going to be there to help me? How many emails can someone who is emotionally distressed, how many emails can they send on their own if no one's getting back to them? So I think with changing a systems thing Mm. will take time, but I think good things come with time. 
Yeah, one of the things as a models of care scientist that I often think about in like one of the swiftest or more fe most effective ways of changing systems is rethinking roles and, and re rethinking what a system is centered around. And um, for instance, our system tends to be quite physician, our health system, I'm talking about healthcare system, it tends to be quite physician centric. And so um, is that the best? Is that the ideal organization to reach the needs of um, like emotional uh, connection and, and social connection that is driving, is the root cause of distress in maybe a university student population? Or uh, I think, you know, I've heard that like 60% of students at the University of Calgary have in some form or another food insecurity, you know, is the type of stress that comes from that that can wind somebody up in the emergency department. Is that really a physician efficient role to answer um, and so that's where I start to think about like how can we be faster and I think sometimes it's like let's let's really imagine what we're organizing ourselves around are we just asking for the systems to like provide this service or are we um, like positioning ourselves as different types of actors do you think there should be um, anti-racism training or questioning about it during like interview process of getting into medical school, the three years of medical school that um, students take at U of C specifically, and should there be like implementations of seminars, workshops, or whatever it may be during the residency program to keep the conversation going? Because I personally think having, let's say, one class during their medical school education isn't going to sustain themselves for like the next x amount of years that they're going to be practicing mm -hmm. so what are your thoughts on just implementing anti-racism training or just educating physicians about different ways of approaching wellness and health sure i think that um adult education research uh, establishes that uh, behavior change does not happen from a course alone that knowledge alone simply acquiring new knowledge does not lead to behavior change and so in medicine, we think about competencies, right? And we break down competency, not just as knowledge. Knowledge is part of it, but it's also attitudes and behavior practices. And um, so to educate or to train competencies, it's not just a course. Um, now, if we looked at the TRC and, and the TRC calls to action relating to the health legacies of residential schools or calls 18 to 24, um, I think it's 24 itself that, that calls on the, uh, schools of health professional education to provide um, Indigenous health training to a course in Indigenous health to all trainees, something like that. And, it, and they, they also specify the contents of a, such a course that it should have something like con conflict resolution, human rights education, I think something around intercultural communication. Um, and I think that's you know, a, a directive that's coming from a very empirical source. It was thoughtful, but uh, in our own Indigenous health dialogue process in the medical school, we walked through the those calls 18 to 24 and very deliberately reflected as a small group of us working in Indigenous health, reflected on what those calls mean for what our institution could do. And we early on reflected that that call itself was the best that like an external organization could give us in terms of a directive, but probably a course itself was insufficient, probably not enough. Um, so if we look to the adult research, the adult education research, um, for one, longitudinal and reflective education are key. So self-reflection over a long period of time. 
is important. Uh, so that's not very embedded in medical education at any level um, as it is. Uh, just by the nature of, of moving through like a lot of expert knowledge to secure like a license and, and permission to practice, um, the knowledge is not pack does not tend to be packaged in such a self-reflective way. At, at more of a residency level, it can be because there's this like opportunity to apply and reflect and um, you know make sense of a differential diagnosis and, and kind of puzzle away at stuff and then have mentorship with like a one-on-one -on -one with a preceptor or a, you know a smaller team than you get in undergraduate medical education when you're in medical school. But the big challenge we have is that the preceptors who are like the educators in these types of clinical-based contexts themselves don't have critical Indigenous health education usually. And so they're coming from a, the, the educators are often coming at it from a position of bias. Not always, but there is significant. We do, I have a PhD student working in this area, specifically postgraduate medical education and anti-racism and Indigenous health education, and uh, has collected much data about about this dynamic and so we're in across Canada medical schools are sort of in a dilemma where there's like directives at the royal college level for what anti-racism and indigenous health education should achieve but how it gets mobilized into actual um, learnings is not specified it's not broken down and it's a real challenge to figure out how it happens because not only does it have to happen across the 17 medical schools where there are residency programs but you have like over a hundred different types of programs that are certified by the college like you have all the specialties like um, family medicine stands apart from the college there but you have like you know obstetrics or pathology and so forth which are their own programs um, or specializations and then you have like fellowships and other types of um, training opportunities so figuring out how to do that I think it's hard and fundamentally I think needs grounding uh, and guidance from indigenous uh, scholars and communities to direct what is the outcomes that need to be achieved there. You brought up an interesting point um, with saying how can you educate students when the educators themselves may not be educated? So I've actually reflected on this at length with my mentor. I mentioned him, Lindsay Groshu. Uh, we wrote a paper on it with a, a mentee, a student a couple of years ago, Caitlin uh, Cookfer. Um, it's a commentary. Basically, we, we were invited um, through a journal that was publishing a, a systematic review on Indigenous health curricula in medical schools internationally. It was um, conducted by a group of Maori scholars from Aotearoa, and they argued that uh, essentially, from what they could see of Indigenous health curricula and, and education in medical schools, it tends to happen off the side of people's desk or like a lone wolf sort of scholar that builds this content, but it's not embedded or integrated across multiple learning streams. It's sort of like a, a special interest among other special interests, not, you know, not recognizing or not approaching Indigenous health as fundamentally like an aspect of care that will affect every specialization. That it's not just family medicine that's going to work with it, that absolutely every physician will encounter Indigenous peoples and needs to be competent and safe. And so um, in that in our response to that review, we saw a number of opportunities. And one of them was to emphasize that 
you know, funding flows, funding for the educators in these institutions and so forth flows according to what organizational units get um, named and, and empowered within an institution. So departments or by research institutes, right? If you're always in hiring indigenous health scholars on like the margin of each one of these departments, no money is actually flowing for indigenous health as a strategy within a school. So that's problematic. And so we emphasized in our commentary back to that uh, review that indigenous health be treated as its own discipline. Because whether... If you take another specialization, like, say, obstetrics and gynecology, whether you're a PhD researcher in that field or you're a resident or, a, you know, an established physician or even a nurse or any other kind of health, allied health provider, you have a knowledge base that's shared. You understand that, like, the, this domain of practice broadly relates to humans reproducing humans, right? Like, so they're like anything related to prenatal care all the way up to like um, birth and and uh, and early life, right? It falls within this domain. So there's a, you know, a shared reference group. And so a physician and a PhD will approach that knowledge very differently. The PhD is possibly looking at like, you know, what are, what are factors or, or kind of like approaches that can improve outcomes at like, you know, a, a programmatic or um, clinical organizational level, whereas the physician might be looking at it from, you know, a very specific patient focus and mobilizing this background knowledge of, of risks and such to make decisions in a given situation. Indigenous health has a shared knowledge base that colonization is a driver of poor health, and this for the researcher has... Um, you know, the the guidance gives the guidance that, well, for one, we need to understand when it's even appropriate to use indigenous, which is this like really all encompassing, very nebulous notion that's ultimately an othering concept from a colonial context, right? Because people don't normally identify as indigenous, they, they'll identify as their cultural group or background. Um, that how, how when it's appropriate to even use that for under you know building knowledge because it might confuse more than it actually reveals. Um, they can understand that sophistication and then like the clinician might be approaching it as like recognizing how like all of that colonial context will shape mistrust and resistance or hesitation to even come into the clinic or uh, engage with healthcare systems or why it is that patients may present with um, with much later more advanced and um, symptoms for a condition than, than other patients and instead of blaming like what are skills for communication that can like repair relationships that's a shared knowledge base and so we make this argument that indigenous health is its own discipline and I think that that's a really important thing to do um, another thing that we we emphasize is that and, and and that's to to center indigenous scholars and knowledge holders and 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 clinicians and so forth and organize them so that their peers and other specializations listen to them not as like a special interest group but like as an actual like knowledge base um, of experts and then another recommendation is around rethinking leadership and and not having leadership envisioned as just top down but um, also recognizing how relationalism by as a principle that um, encourages uh, understanding the motivations and connecting to the motivations of one another 
is a form of leadership and that you can be curating lateral and horizontal relationships within your institution. Basically, when people come forward interested in collaborating with you or learning from you, um, to be like, yeah, let's talk, let's 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 build a relationship, let's listen to one another, and and through that process, when opportunities arrive arise, then we're in a position to maybe do something together, and um, and that's been the approach that we've taken instead of just being angry. Um, to work with those that come to us that are interested and build the possibility for relationships that can then lead to us being better positioned when opportunities arise. And so like from 2015, when the TRC came out, we did this Indigenous Health Dialogue from 2016 to 18. We did a lot of relational kind of like self-reflection as like a small group on the calls to action related to the health legacies. But then, um, like, shopping that around to different units in our medical school that didn't do much in Indigenous health to be like, what does this mean for you? And then, um, and so those units having more awareness of what, what they could maybe do and, and maybe a, a, a desire to do something and not really knowing how to connect to it. So seeking that connection with us to the point where now in 2023, there's, like, this pathways circle in, in the medical school that you know, regularly meets and, and invites people and entities doing, trying to, to advance things in Indigenous health to come and share their idea and learn from others trying to do their things. And so, like, that's, again, like, working with, like, a notion of relationalism and basically encouraging space and, and, and um, opportunities to share that um, encourage champions, partners, um, and vision forward in spaces that we don't actually all individually reach. I so. agree. I agree. I agree with the um, Indigenous health as its own discipline. I think that's very important. And I know I want to um, come back to the notion of you saying how money flows between each department. And I was wondering, like, there's different authorities for each system. So how do you address this power imbalance between these systems when conducting research on Indigenous health? Um, it depends on my funder, often. Um, and uh, for one, I'm, I'm always very um, clear who I'm accountable to, like who's the community that this is done with. Like I don't just do a research project because I'm interested in it. It's, it comes from a desire and community. And we, you know, form out an advisory group or it's like actually just deeply community partnered and, and I'm almost like uh, being tasked by, by a, an already organized entity to do certain things. But uh, so it's, it, it, it kind of depends. But I think um, understanding accountabilities and who I'm accountable to and even if a funder might be a government like, uh, you know, the federal government, that it's... I'm not working for that entity. I'm working for the the transformation in health outcomes that is um, is the collective named goal, um, and uh, and I was just having this conversation with somebody recently that like there. I don't want to get too political about this um, because there is a. Um, there's not always when you when you're managing big research money, um, and and doing like very like complex community engaged work at like a regional level across all of Alberta with you know dozens of nations and 
and a real crisis that is at play, like the opioids and drug overdose crisis, as, as it should be called, or drug poisoning crisis, as it should be called in, in right now. Um, it's important to understand that not every dollar spent really cleanly matches onto an imp- Im- Im- or maps onto an impactful outcome. Sometimes I, you know, like just to make up a number, like sometimes I'll spend $90,000 just on like the relationships, honoraria to be able to come together and where 90% of what happens there is healing for people that are need to just experience together um, a conversation. And 10% of that funding actually goes to the staff that will write the report from it and maybe pay the publication fee. Like 90000 That It doesn't mean that that $1 translates into one impact, mm-hmm. right? And I feel like we, we kind of think that way that, oh, I got like a $100,000 grant. I can do so much with this money. Mm-hmm. But in reality, all that, the 100 k that you get, the most you can do is just organize. And just start Mm -hmm. and not actually get to the nitty gritty work. Yeah. And sometimes $10,000 can do an immense amount. It just, it really, I think what's important is to recognize is the readiness and the structure that may or may not exist there within a community context to mobilize knowledge. Sometimes there's not been organization around a common topic at like a multi-nation level that might be at play like with a drug poisoning crisis. And so a lot of time just needs to be spent on coming to figuring out what is common vision because the experiences are quite diverse. Um, when even like it's recognized among many that, that, that having common action is going to be helpful and impactful, it just sometimes takes way more time than uh, you'd yeah. expect. And it's, and it's an effect of colonization, right? Like, like um, a colonized group is always going to have their, their uh, political structures undermined by existing structures right and so like even when it seems to like go sideways I always have to remind myself that it's not that people are disorganized is that we benefit so much in non-indigenous and kind of like white systems of what's been built up before the protocols the decision-making processes the you know the delegated staff to do things which you know you often have to reinvent every time you do a new project and in colonized spaces. It's how you allocate your resources, mostly. Mm, yeah. But um, I heard, Dr. Rita Henderson, you are a lead author for the Clinical Practice Guidelines for Providing Care to Indigenous Patients with Obesity in Canada. So I wanted to ask, like, if you could speak with about these guidelines and how did you ensure that these guidelines are grounded in community voices and avoid being pan-Indigenous? Mm. Um, Okay, that's really interesting because I think the clinical practice guidelines were innovative for all. So the clinical practice guidelines are like many chapters. I think we were chapter like 38 or maybe 20. I can't remember, but there's like tons of chapters. There's like on, you know, eye health and, um, you know, maternal health. And there's like all these different chapters that come at the the topic from different angles. And um, we were the indigenous focus, providing care to indigenous patients chapter. And um, clinical practice guidelines are done across, you know, most care modalities um, and um, and tend to be organized around disease entities right and obesity isn't actually a disease right like it's not there's like being obese is not a problem that's not itself an issue but I feel like 
it's that they cut you off but i feel like a lot of people actually categorize obesity as a disease mm. well there's an there's a an advocacy around it um uh, certainly and and i think there's some justified but uh, there's some justification for the attention but i don't i think it's very important to to emphasize that i don't pathologize obesity I perceive that it can be a driver or a complicator, you know, a mitigator of other health outcomes, right? And where people may want to address their obesity, physicians should be able to help them and should be able to do better, right? And that's the that's the approach that that we came to it with. And I would say that the the lead authors, the people that organized the whole like pan-Canadian approach to these many chapters emphasize that and and so they already led with like they, they led with a lot of like they entrusted us to figure out how to do it safely and do it well and that enabled us to depart from sort of medical standards for like evaluating best evidence so within medicine like the gold standard of evidence tends to be uh, randomized control trials like if you can do a large-scale study and look at how an intervention like a particular pharmacologic intervention uh, impacts this disease and you control all the variables that's a randomized control trial and you can compare to a group that a non-intervention group um, for a number of reasons we call them RCTs um, they're not always possible but not even very useful in indigenous contexts because for one we know that indigenous people are geographically culturally genetically diverse and so does that make sense so like you know there there are also people and there can be indigenous people in many randomized control trials and that's great actually randomized control trials need more geographic cultural genetic gender diversity that's you know policy now through the canadian institutes of health research um, but uh, this requires anybody doing like this this need to contextualize knowledge in a way and, and figure out what is a gold standard, what's what's good evidence when there's no randomized control trials and like ranking what is more solid evidence than others uh, becomes a bit more subjective or you need to have mechanisms to create consensus about what is stronger evidence versus others. So that was one challenge and, and I really appreciate that the the lead, team, the editorial team, and the lead authors on the larger initiative entrusted us to figure that out and not feel like we would only include evidence. Because when you embark on a clinical practice guidelines, you you do a, a large systematic search of the literature for information on this topic, and you synthesize it in a way that it leads to understanding you know, what improved practice can look like or how to achieve it what you should be doing whether you should be screening for this or that and, and so forth and um, in this case there was two issues with the literature and we, we there was like 170 some articles that we came up with um, for obesity in indigenous context and I, I can't remember if we I think we limited it to Canada and it was still that much but all of it almost all of it all of it I'd say was in population health okay so what I mean by that is none of it was clinical in like saying what can you do clinically in the face of like this it was either epidemiological like like trying to like portray rates of obesity among um indigenous populations or in certain named cultural groups or it was like intervention studies like you know a community garden and how did it you know this nutritional sovereignty support obesity as one outcome or something like that 
um, where they were like qualitative studies on like experiences and perspectives and 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 so forth of the condition, or they were commentaries in in journals. But all of it ranked it like when we when you do a clinical practice guidelines, you kind of rank A to D, with D being like the lowest quality supposed quality of the evidence, which is basically like it's not randomized control groups. You can't like you know necessarily replicate the research and kind of like these more standard ideas about about what makes science science um but we we really emphasize that just because it's qualitative doesn't mean it's not evidence informed um and so there are qualitative tools for establishing rigor and um and that included like a consensus-based process and so we recruited I mean, we, we had limited time. We recruited uh, through an urban primary health care clinic in Calgary by the name of Elbow River Healing Lodge. Um, patients that had experiences with themselves with obesity, either them, themselves or, you know, caring for somebody close to them with obesity. And we wound up having 14 people. And so it was an urban indigenous reference group. But they had like a range of cultural backgrounds and experiences, and we vetted or we we engaged the research that we had looked at in in the literature with this group in these talking circle dialogue processes over several weeks, and um, and helped and that helped us contextualize a lot of what this means for them when they come to seek services about obesity or related to obesity, and um, from there that helped us whittle down we were asked by the editorial team to only have four recommendations but we we whittled what was originally like 96 because we had like a you know a research team that initially like was asked to just write a list of all of the opportunities for shift in practice that could be identified we had 96 and we had to whittle it down and a lot of them got whittled out because they were like recommendations that sat outside of indigenous specific focus and then we got down to um 12 and they had to do with largely understanding how knowledge can diverge from different groups there's an intercultural exchange here and so actually all of our recommendations none of our recommendations are particularly obesity focused they have a lot to do with communication and knowledge exchange recognizing that patients don't come into clinical spaces devout of knowledge they are bringing their own knowledge and they are seeking a therapeutic relationship but that doesn't mean that what the physician necessarily offers is actually what they're seeking. They don't necessarily want to be hooked up with like a, you know, a, co- a corporate or commercial diet company. They may want to address their stress, right? Or not know that stress is a driver and, and just need recognition on the part of a service provider that of what they're struggling with. So, I mean, like that that's a little bit of the process. Um, but um, I was very honored to be involved in that, and and I feel that um, it's a it's an innovation in what we call knowledge synthesis for for indigenous health research in Canada. That's really cool. Um, I know you said that there's like different chapters for the clinical guidelines. What do you mean when you say what do you mean when you say about like you know those guidelines? What are they specifically? Because I've never actually heard about them. Uh, well, clinical practice guidelines are um, like. <laughs> They're these, uh, they, they get produced every few years, depending on diseases, like you can have them for dementia or for um, like rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and, uh, and, and this was like, I think the second round that had been produced for obesity. And I think one of the few in the world um, for obesity. And I'm just pulling them up right now because the, to, to see the chapters. Um, 
because the the summary chapter, which was published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal, and that was for all the chapters together, we were all co-authors on it, actually um, was, uh, was the most read article in the CMAJ, I think, in 2020, which is sort of funny for me because that happened to be the year of COVID. So I think like every other paper was COVID related. Um, and it just showed how much obesity was of attention. And I, I think it, it, that also related to COVID, uh, even though we published it before. Um, and I just can't find all the chapters names, but you know, it, it, they, they guide, there's nothing enforceable about clinical practice guidelines for how physicians practice. But like, you know, if, if you have a chronic disease and you find that your physician seems to not know anything about your disease and not know, like, like I have somebody very close to me has celiac disease and there's very like specific conditions about how you can be diagnosed and screened. And sometimes physicians give a recommendation like maybe just don't eat wheat or don't eat gluten if that makes you feel better. And people in the celiac community sometimes get very frustrated with that kind of recommendation because if you can get a scope, an, endo, an endoscopic diagnosis um, that is confirmed, it actually is supposed to justify all first-degree relatives also being screened, even regardless of symptoms, right? And um, because there's about 50% of people with celiac disease have no obvious gastro symptom, and so they don't go with a diagnosis, but that means that they have very high risk for cancer later in life, or actually pretty early in life too. And uh, so it's cancer prevention. <laughs> so people in the celiac community can get like, you know, as soon as you go off of a gluten-free diet for an extended period of time, you can't get the scope because you're not, your body's not reacting to it. So clinical practice guidelines can be tools for patient populations to advocate for what their physician teams need to be doing, right? So they're, n they're not necessarily these enforceable things, that, but, but they also help research communities be able to say, is what is happening in medicine aligned with what is best practice, right? And there's been studies that have been able to show that like maybe 50% of what or less of what is done clinically is actually aligned with the evidence mm -hmm. base. And it's by using these really rigorous, um, uh, these rigorous guidelines that have been set up through these like really established processes for determining what is best evidence in an area. Um, to establish that like, like large amounts of, of, of medicine, of activities that happen within our healthcare systems are not evidence-informed. Do these guidelines focus on the differences in cross-culture like knowledge? So like, how would you like recognize and navigate cross-culture differences in knowledge exchange when conducting research? Well, that's what our chapter tries to do. I don't, I don't think it's something that's been done a whole lot. Um, but that's why we wind up focusing on knowledge exchange and really actually decentering Western biomedical knowledge on what obesity is. Like a lot of like what came out in our reference group of people that we recruited and then less so in the literature base, but we did find sources for it was that um, that, uh, you know, even understandings of what an ideal body type is, is culturally grounded. And um, if you come from a community that has had um, a lot of. Uh, poverty and malnourishment over many generations. Um, like, what is a healthy body? What is perceived as a healthy body can be quite different. And so, um, trying to highlight that for physicians to even like recognize their own biases about what is a healthy body when they encounter somebody in clinic that may 
they may perceive to, to have obesity when it's not even an issue that the patient is bringing up. That's cool that you brought that up because I didn't know those clinical guidelines existed. Yeah. So that was something new that I learned. But with the guidelines, you said they, they get made every year? No, no. And it's really like the organization of specialists and, and, and physicians or like a um, a specialization group that is like, like a, a national group that's focused on that disease or what have you. It's not something that like the Royal College mandates to do. Um, so the people, Sean Wharton, who led the group that did the, all of the guidelines, um, you know, put together a grant and got got funding and, and partnered with the Obesity um, Network of Canada and or the Canadian Obesity Network and um, visioned what would need to be all the topic areas included and reached out to experts in the field and asked us to be lead authors and to advance ours and then like tried to standardize our processes and make sure that like we were producing something of collective value so it's I think this is something that like was a sharp learning curve for me coming from the social sciences is just how socially constructed medicine is right yeah. and science yeah. right like you always hear people be like well the science says and i'm like it, and science never says anything determined if you're saying the science says then you don't know what science is yeah. like or how it works because it's not like to get consensus takes time but there's always like any scientist i know is always careful about their conclusions like they're like it may mean this it may mean that this is the best evidence we have and this suggests this yeah that's why in papers you never say this is the answer it's always more tentative yeah. and because it's more humble and it's it's more of a collective process there's no i mean but you can you can work towards consensus there are a lot of models for consensus building and i think that that like coming back to the point on leadership is like a corporatist capitalist vision of leadership doesn't necessarily translate well to health and healthcare because um it is a profit driven vision for how to get value out of the organization of people to act on medicine and evidence and um i like it uh, you know we have to recall that you know health is a human right <laughs> we have to have citizen models that are consensus-based democratic um and and science is about that at its core although we live in a world that in a post-covid reality especially um has been more politicized and therefore um has less kind of like a, a less space for a citizen science in our organizing of our healthcare systems. I like the, you know, how you took up on the project to research into obesity. I know you came up with like 12 guidelines. Is it possible to share, maybe not 12, but maybe like maybe one or two that really stood out to you? Paralysis. We talk about seeming apathy or seeming paralysis by patient and provider happens with obesity where there, there can be this impasse, say, between a patient and a provider where they both feel like like they're overwhelmed and don't know what to do with this. The, like the degree of complexity to act on is, is really hard. And sometimes moving through that seeming paralysis is to re-envision it and acknowledge that feeling of maybe like seeming apathy or, and, and to invite on the provider's side an exploration of why they feel that way. You know, because our position is that they can ask questions differently. They don't, like, uh, you get this narrative sometimes in physician groups about patient non-adherence non to 
pharmacologic regimes like the to prescriptions, right? Um, but on and so we shifted and we we refused to use that language because it, it really positions the physician as authority, which is a very colonial type of dynamic. And um, in in the community groups that we engage with, there's really this desire for a physician to be a helper, not like this expert. And so we talk about physician patient or physician client non concordance. Right. Where there's like so. So in in the face of like seemingly like apathy, like basically recognize how you need to explore if you're a provider, you need to explore your own assumptions that are at play of what's going on and maybe just take a step back and and work with the patient to even define what's understood to be the issue. Um, So that's like the knowledge exchange bit is like you can't tell somebody what to do about, say, their obesity if you're assuming that your job is to tell them what to do. Right. Like you, you need to be even asking, well, look, you came here because you're hoping for a therapeutic relationship. What is it that you hope that I can help you with and not to do it in an accusatory way? Another thing that we found, we kind of learned this in a number of projects, including this one, and we write it in in different ways. Um, So it's not a very clear recommendation, but it's in there about like, you know, physician. We asked both physicians and, and community groups about whether they wanted to be asked about residential schooling their residential school experiences within um, that therapeutic relationships. And by and large, physicians always said, no, I don't ask about it. I'm not going to ask about it. That's a private thing. It's so touchy. I don't want to do it in a way that's not trauma-informed. I just don't think that people want to share that with me. And by and large, um, the client groups, the patient groups were like, look, we want to be asked about it, but in the right way. It matters how it gets asked. And And part of it is like, you know, leaving the space for me to to say or not say, um, and flagging for me that it's that you're that you see it as like part of the story, but not the whole thing, and that you're not doing it, and then going to like see that as the only lens through which all of my complexity gets understood. Um, and so, like that's for us, we're just seeing like non-concordance right between like the provider and the patient groups and that like if you want to build trust if you want to like better serve this population which requires rebuilding trust in the context of a colonial the colonial legacies of healthcare um it takes hearing what patients are asking for and maybe reconsidering your firmness and never asking that and exploring as a provider what else you could do Interesting. I like the the first guidelines you had with the power dynamics. Mm. Yeah. Like you can't understand it if you have the hierarchical power, you know? Yeah, especially in this context. I, I would say that there is some research that um, some populations or some newcomer populations that like a strong power dynamic with a healthcare provider, they feel they may feel safe. Um, it, it may feel appropriate that like I got somebody watching my back and that's just culturally relevant or resonant for them. Um, and so I wouldn't want to say that that never works or that it's never appropriate, but as part of being culturally attuned and safe is to understand sort of like the larger social and structural dynamics that lead to these preferences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, one last question before we wrap, wrap up the episode for today. So if you could leave the listeners with one point, um, maybe like a learning or a highlight, what would it be? Some broad question. <laughs> yeah, no, it's relationship and relationalism is that um, you, it's on all of us to create a relationship with this knowledge base. I think the TRC uh, states it in the principles that, that reconciliation is the job of all Canadians. 
Um, it's uh, the job. It's it's asked of all our institutions, all of us. There's so much to be known. It will never be packaged in a single course, and that your relationship be longitudinal over a long period of time, and it be self-reflective. Nice. I like that. I will keep that. <laughs> I'll keep that for myself as well. But thank you so much, Dr. Rita Henderson, for joining us today and sharing your insights. I really enjoyed the conversation today. Yeah, thank you again, Dr. Rita Henderson. We really enjoyed the discussion we had today, and we really appreciate you taking your time out of your busy schedule. We want to thank CJSW, the Indigenous Global and Local Health Office, Grandmother's Lounge, and the Ucreate team for helping us kick start this podcast. We couldn't have done this without your support and knowledge. Lastly, thank you to everyone who tuned in. Remember to join us on CGSW, Spotify, and Apple Music for bi-weekly episodes on all topics of healthcare with special guests and your two favorite hosts, Arushi and Harveen. And before we end off this episode, I just want to say happy birthday, Arushi. You're 21 years old, but you look like you're 15. I'll take that as a compliment. So thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So keep a lookout for the next episodes. And until then, I mean, I was going to say stay warm, but it is warm outside. So go outside. Thank you. See you guys next time.